This week on the DTD podcast, we have 25-year law enforcement veteran. He's worked patrol, motors, vice. He's been all over. And now he starts on a new embarkment in his life. That's the owner of a coffee company, Police Coffee Company. It's not just coffee. They still are giving back to the community of fallen officers. It's Stephen Bennett, so let's get right into it. Crazy Dutch bastard. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. I don't call me so. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. As I said before, in the studio tonight is Stefan Bennett. He's not only a law enforcement officer of 25 years, but he's also started his own coffee company. Now, it's not your normal coffee company. They don't just make their profits and move on. They give back to fallen officers at the concerns of police survivors. And we got him in the studio tonight to talk about not only his career, but how he moved into coffee and what his ideas are for the future. So, Stefan, welcome. Thanks for having me here tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, long storied career, and then we got into coffee. So, Let's kind of work through this whole process because it seems like a crazy thing that you would switch over all of a sudden into coffee, but it's kind of going off like crazy. So let's start with your career. You started back in 1995. Um, What gave you the idea first off to even get into law enforcement? I think my story is pretty typical uh, to a lot of officers where Uh, We have family members that are involved in law enforcement. And for a period of time, uh, my dad was a police officer in the Bay Area, uh, California Bay Area. And I think that that carried with me over the years. You know, and as I got older, I thought, yeah, that's that's a job I want to do. I don't want a nine to five job. I don't want to be stuck in the office all the time. I want something that that's different, that offers some level of excitement and enjoyment. And that's kind of it's kind of where it started. So would you say that it goes back all the way as you were a kid or as you got older, you started thinking about it? I think the idea was planted when I was a a youngster, and I think it stuck with me over the years. It may not have been the initial direction. I'll be honest. I wanted to race cars for a long time. Uh, Then we moved from California to Utah, and at the time, there was no racetrack here. Uh, Currently, we've got a great world-class racetrack nearby. Um, but that, that dream took its, took its time and, uh, I took a different path, you know, going into law enforcement, uh, helping the community here in, uh, in Utah. Now with that, not being your original, uh, kind of base of operations being from the Bay area and stuff, did it feel the same? Did it feel like that was your home or did it feel like that was kind of your adopted home? Um, we moved to, my family moved to Utah uh, when I was still in high school. So, so the transition period initially was a little rough. I felt like 
Uh, I know we talked before that, that felt like it going back in time, uh, but pretty much everything's caught up. And, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely my home. I go back and visit family members in, in California and I don't miss the traffic. Uh, we've got luxuries here of having the airport, you know, 15 minutes away. So 15 minutes away, I can be on a, on a plane going anywhere in the world, or I can go another 15 minutes in, in any other direction and end up in the wilderness. So uh, there's definitely some pros to being uh, here in the Wasatch Front. So let's talk about what we just said uh, about going back in time. Let's let's talk about that a little bit in that area. Um, it's known for being, uh, I mean, w- we can say that it's known for being a little bit behind the times, especially with um, the religious population that's there and stuff. But as you and I talked about it, you said that it's really not that way anymore, that it's really kind of grown up and made itself kind of its own big city. And it, it kind of has all the trouble that all the other cities have had now, the large cities, Chicago, New York, Dallas, uh, Detroit. When did you see that shift? Because you started back in 95. We're going into 2021 now. Where did you see that shift start to happen in that area? I think I think the big growth has started over the last 10 years, and we're really seeing uh, increased uh, velocity of growth here in in the city with tech companies moving in, uh, the housing market going vertical, uh, lots and lots of high-rise apartments going in. Um, I, I really think it's been the last 10 years, you know, the homeless issues have, have risen their head here. Uh, as far as as far as far being backwards or, or behind the times, I, I think it's finally caught up. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is is the, the population of, of Salt Lake City is predominantly, um, shall we say, less religious than the rest of the state. And so you tend to see uh, the same things you see in any other major cities. You know, we have our drug areas. We have a, a high degree of gang violence uh, from time to time. We have our prostitution issues. Uh, the same, same issues that face any major city are facing us uh, in Salt Lake. What do you think it was that that made that switch happen? Um, I I don't know if I'm unpacking that good enough, but where where you see that real rise in is it just because of the population explosion? Is it because of the tech industries and stuff moving in? What is it that kind of made that switch for that city in order to kind of grow in the direction that all the other major cities were? I really think that people found out that's a great place to live. You know, one of those best kept secrets kind of kind of thing. You know, lower crime rate than other areas, um, although it's still there. And just the, uh, the the wilderness and outdoor activities that are there, and the, the close proximity to an international airport. After you graduate from the academy, you go out on patrol. What are your ideas? As you get out of the academy, do you have a kind of a five-year plan, 10-year plan that you want to do, or are you kind of flying by the, the seat of your pants on it? No. One of, one of the reasons I went to a larger agency was to have those opportunities to move around. Um, I thought about becoming a police officer in, in the, the smaller town I grew up in, and, you know, not a lot of lateral or upward mobility opportunities. And a mentor of mine recommended I, I take a look at the department I'm at. And I did that. And there was just a lot more opportunity. So as a new officer, yeah, I did have a plan. I had some some good mentors that pointed me in the right direction. 
who you know recommended you don't spend too much time in any one area you know find out what you like to do uh, do the best you can and, and then try something different which is one of the great advantages of being in law enforcement so really my plan was to move every three to five years uh, to different assignments you know i feel like that three-year mark is probably where you start mastering it and it was time to try something new a lot of the problems with the big city uh, law enforcement agencies are they promise that in their recruiting. There's a lot of places to move up. There's a lot of upward mobility. There's things like that. Now, we've seen a problem, though, in the past couple of years with the explosion of crime, uh, with the uh, kind of hatred and vitriol that we have against police right now. We're having a lot of trouble recruiting uh, retention because of pay and things like that. So what you see essentially is in these large organizations where there's supposed to be upward mobility, there's supposed to be things that help you move around. You kind of see it stagnate. And you and I had talked about it a little bit. And what we're seeing is people aren't given the benefit of moving around. So they come to these agencies, they work, they do their time of what they need to do in order to move but with low manpower, without being able to recruit more people, they're stuck. Therefore, they leave the department because they can't do what they want to do. And you kind of get into a vicious cycle. Are you seeing that at your department the same as in the Midwestern area? Definitely. Um, as you know, we're going through unprecedented times. And the, the direction law enforcement is being pulled is in so many different ways. Uh you know, the spotlight's definitely on the profession. I think it's made it very difficult to uh, retain people as well as recruit additional people. And so, yeah, we are seeing the same kind of things as, uh, you know, much less lateral movement right now due to the, the staffing shortages that we're seeing. So with there not being that lateral movement, I guess the question is you have to ask, what's the incentive then? I think for the ones that, that are still picking up the, uh, the badge every day and pinning it on their shirt, it's something intrinsic. You know, it's, there's definitely a draw to helping your fellow man. Uh, you know, I'm a believer in supporting people's rights and their freedoms. And I think there's a lot of us that put that badge on every day and go out and do it, even though it may feel at times the world's crashing down around us. And I would think even more than the world crashing down around us. Cause of course that there's always going to be that no matter what, no matter how good it gets, uh, there'll always be that there. I think the problem with it is though, is you, you have that time period where you have these young guys that don't want to come in because they can't move as fast as they want to do. I, uh, you see that a lot where they come in and they think they should be on weekends and they should do this and that. And they, they don't get that opportunity. So therefore they leave. Now you got the people that are middle of the road, about 10 year officers, which they're really, they can't go either way because they, if they leave, they give up all that time. They give up all that seniority, everything that they've worked for. And on the opposite of it, they still haven't gone up high enough or spent enough time on where they have major seniority to do other things. So you get these people that are trapped. I guess that's the question that I'm asking you with that. You have young having a problem. You have middle having a problem because there's no enlistment bonuses. There's no retention bonuses. There's no anything like that to go around right now because they're clamping down on, on funding police departments and things like that. 
how do we fix that problem and how do we continue to bring in not only officers, but how do we continue to bring in good officers? I, I think a lot of that has to do with, with our political officials, as well as the public and, and the media outlets. I think they need to show more support for their law enforcement agencies to show that they do stand for law and order and proper law and order. I'm not saying, uh, you know, the bad cop thing comes up a lot, but I don't think in my experience, you know, the good far outweighs the bad. There's over 750,000 police officers in the U.S. with millions of encounters every day, yet the news continues to portray the negative ones again and again and again. And I think that's the that's the motto or mantra we have in our head that just keeps going in a circle when the reality is something far different. We've got good officers working, doing the job every day. I think we're going through some very difficult times right now. And one of the ways to rectify some of that is if you want good cops, you're gonna to need to pay good cops. You need to pay them what they're worth for what they have to deal with. Uh, you want better educated, you need to pay for better educated. Um, I think I think for a long time, a lot of agencies have tried to give champagne service on a beer budget, if you will. And I, I think now we're, we're seeing that, that the, the crunch is happening and an effort to retain people, I think, pays part of it. I think showing people the benefits of the job, the, the uh, self-satisfaction you get from helping people. And one of the reasons I like working with a local agency is you can see the impact you have on people on a regular basis. Um, like I said, I've been here 25 years. I've made great friends in the community over that time, uh, you know, helping them with issues and they still come or call and ask, you know, what, what can they do to give back or what can we do to help them with their current issue? But I, 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 think, I think to resolve the problem though, it, it starts with, with our political leaders showing support in, of, of law enforcement in our communities. You would agree, though, that we definitely are in a kind of a pendulum with that. We see it swing back and forth. Now, we, we have swung in another direction. I think some would say almost too far in one direction, that we need to be more middle of the road. With that, though, having it too far to either the left or the right and not the middle, I think that's where the politics come in, and it's very hard to get someone into that uh, that arena or that ability to make a difference in the police department, you can't get those right people in because one, they have to be voted in. And we notice that there's a trend of very uh, left-leaning voting, uh, very liberal voting right now, which is more restrictions, more um, taking abilities away, making things harder to do, more paperwork, uh, and and none of those things in and of themselves are bad. When you couple them all together, though, you have a problem. So with that being the problem of bringing politics into it, how do we move past that? Because us on the, you know, the ground floor where we're at, we can't really change that. You don't want to sponsor politicians and things because then you get into a whole murky area. I agree with you on that. I think, uh, I think what needs to be done, you know, to, to build that back up is we do need courageous leaders in law enforcement. We need leaders that will speak up and, and really let 
the general public know the reality of, of police work day to day. Um, you know, the public still loves watching police shows. They Absolutely. love watching cop movies. Um, it's We're still part of the general public. I just think the, the vocal majority just e- either doesn't doesn't really understand what we do every day or they don't have the voice that they should have to support us. And, you know, I think the leaders really need to step up, um, be very vocal about what things are happening in their cities. I know many cities are seeing a significant rise in, in crimes in all categories because of the, the public, or not, I'm not even gonna say public perception right now, because of the spotlight and the way things are being spun I think you have police that are very cautious about doing things. Um, because of that, you know, everyone's worried about the potential of losing their job. They could make one mistake, and I'm not saying an intentional one. I'm saying a mistake, and they could end up, you know, losing their job or losing their freedoms. And I think we need leaders that will step out in front, explain to the public the difficulty of our job, and. Um, I think they need to see the, the, the good, aggressive, on-view policing, fixing broken windows, if you're familiar with that concept. Absolutely. It was really an effective crime control tactic. And I, I think we need to get back to that. And I think the pendulum will swing that way, but it's going to be a bit of time while, while we deal with the current uh, situations that we're all dealing with. And I think we can all agree that police departments definitely should always be looking at improvement. We as police officers should always be looking at improving. What can we do better? And I think one other thing that's been added on to us over the years is we just keep, or, or should I say, jobs just keep piling on us that weren't necessarily ours to begin with. Absolutely. You know, back in the, I was much younger, but I think in the Reagan years is when we saw the mental health service breakdown in the government. So now you have much more uh, issues with mental health issues on the street with people suffering from various uh, mental disabilities. And somehow that fell on the police shoulders. And so some of these agreements of, or I agree with some of these things where uh, police should get out of certain things that we deal with. It should be a social issue. Not everything is a police issue. And I think I think we've been piled on with a burden of things that maybe we're underprepared for or undertrained for. In saying that, when we talk about the mental illness, that is kind of one of one of the incendiary points that is brought up a lot, uh, especially the mental health. And when you talk about that and you say that maybe we shouldn't be doing that, here's the only problem that I see with it, because I agree that's a that is that's not a police call. The only problem I see with it is we have been introduced a lot to uh, counselors being on scene and taking therapists that are taking these calls of family, you know, family counselors and then therapists that are going out there. The only problem I see with this potentially is what's going to happen when we don't respond to that because of defunding or because they've taken that away from us or for whatever the reason may be, you go to that call. Uh, excuse me, you don't go to that call anymore. That counselor goes there and you have to end up going there to take care because that person broke bad. They did something that wasn't expected. And then we're right back into the same vicious cycle again. 
you know, that's, that's one of those things that needs to get balanced out. And I can tell you that, that the agency I work for was one of the first co-responder models in the, in the nation. And I feel that I don't think social workers should go to calls by themselves. I really think police do a great job. They need to be there because society is so unpredictable. I mean, you can go to, to, to you know, a dog barking call and end up in a shooting because it's something that was totally different. You know, the dog barking was, was that there's a burglar in the backyard, you know, trying to do harm to, to some resident. So you really don't know which way the dice are going to roll. But I do think having a, uh, I, I think we can kind of meld both views by having an armed officer with a social worker, you know, on a, on a call. I think we can, we can effectively do that. Now, you know, one could argue one or two officers with a social worker, and I don't have that answer right now, but I think that's the direction we're starting to move in. I think the only problem that people would see with that is because now you talk about that and you talk about defunding. Now, defunding, of course, doesn't mean taking all the money away, but it definitely takes uh, funds away from things that need to be done. Putting police officers out on the street, putting more patrol elements out there. Of course, it has all to do with that. So the way a lot of people look at it in in law enforcement circles or in in the the general public that supports police is so now you say to defund the police but then you're sending out counselors and a police officer so now you're paying double what you would have for that call originally therefore taking even more money away and we get into that problem have you had anyone approach you about those kind of things i can't say i've had anyone approach me on those issues however uh, funding for police. You cannot defund police departments. Absolutely. If anything, they need to be funded better than they are now. I mean, you know, there's a big push for training and all these other things, but I think what, what a lot of folks don't understand is that for every hour of training, that's an hour you've taken a police officer from your community to, to become better trained. So all these, all these improvements require us to fund the police departments to a higher level than they are currently to make sure you have adequate staffing to support while uh, people are in training. You also need to have uh, the additional staffing to meet the requirements of these co-responder models. I don't think we should be taking anything away from the police departments. Uh, these additional social, social service issues uh, should be separate entities that are paid for out of a separate budget, not tied to the police department. Uh, Funding the police is critical, and I'm definitely old school. I'd like to see a lot more officers in the neighborhoods, either either on foot or or being able to take time to stop and talk to, you know, the neighbors in that area and get to know them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So there's a face and a name attached to who's protecting their neighborhood. And something you bring up there, which I completely agree with, you can't defund police departments. You, matter of fact, almost have to double down and fund them more. You mentioned the point that with all of the training for every hour of training, that's an hour out of, out of the streets, out of uh, detective work, whatever it may be. Another thing to that though, is training costs money. You know that I know that uh, people want better um, shooting training. People want better. That costs money. And so we get into that weird area where, you know, People want things that aren't possible. Uh, 
And we can't ever get past that because we can't come to a common understanding of we understand what you want, but this is what it's going to take to get there. We never can see that. And, and I think you would agree. We never can see that kind of middle ground between the two sides. And, and I think you would agree there are two sides to this issue. Well, there, there definitely are. Again, I keep coming back to, to our leadership and our politicians. They really need to be that front line or that buffer uh, to society and the police department to let them know what needs to be done. If you want this level of service or you want this level of policing or you want these changes done, this is what these are the steps we'll take. And yes, there is a cost associated with it. There definitely is a cost associated with it that I don't think that a lot of people understand. In saying all this that we've talked about defunding and everything, in saying all of that, where do we go from here as police? I think the next few years are going to be a very interesting time for all of us to see where things go, to see which way that pendulum swings. Because like we said earlier, it's not done swinging back and forth. I think we really need to find that middle ground again of where police are able to do their job, enforce laws, people are held accountable for the crimes they commit and not, not excuses made for the crimes. Um, I, I think it will get back there. What, what I don't know is what it's going to look like over the next few years with a lot of these drastic measures uh, that are being pushed down kind of in a knee-jerk reaction to, again, those very small incidents that are being handled appropriately um, by the local court systems. Um, but I think we're seeing that fallout nationwide of, of kind of that magnification and villa, villa, huh, villainizing uh, police officers when you know, most of my life, we were always treated like, like we were local heroes. Maybe not as much as firefighters, but definitely we were part of the community. And, you know, I still feel that way. I still get a lot of uh, people that come up to me and say, you know, we support the police and we're thankful for what you do and don't let, don't let the news get you down. So, you know, those daily reminders, uh, you know, let me keep my head up and let me know that there's folks that support us. And, and I think that's what you need to rely on while we go through this uh, time of rapid change. I think another problem is the misconception that a lot of people have. They believe that when people are getting out of jail or people aren't being prosecuted or there's not necessarily uh, harsher sentencing, that that has something to do with the police when it couldn't be further from the truth. That has everything to do with the prosecution phase. That has everything to do with the prosecutor's office. And another trend that we're seeing across the United States as a whole is weaker prosecution and not necessarily taking laws off the books, but interpreting them to each district attorney's office. Are you having that same issue there? We see some similar issues in this area, uh, not to the extent. I know I've been following the news on the L.A. County district attorney and some of the you know, I don't know what to call it. I mean, we, we, you know, we would call it, if a jury did it, we'd call it jury nullification. Mm -hmm. But what I think we're seeing now is prosecutorial nullification, where they're choosing not to enforce certain laws, uh, you know, not to, not to charge people where they should be. And, and I do think it falls back on the police. What I would like to see is more transparency in the district attorney's offices 
and in the court system to see where the breakdown really is. Because I know it's not the police. Um, our guys go out every day, do the best they can, and they're arresting the same offender over and over and over again. Uh, for example, uh, auto theft is fairly rampant in the area that I, that I work in. And we can catch someone. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a high-level felony. They'll go to jail, and in two hours, they're back out because it's a nonviolent felony. And these people commit it again and again and again. Then they go in and they'll take a plea for something like joyriding, or even if they, they do get charged with a full uh, felony auto theft, you know, a lot of times we see the judges, you know, giving them much lesser sentences and, and the cycle continues. And that happens, you know, in a vast majority of crimes. I'm not just saying auto theft. Uh, we see it with shoplifters, uh, burglars. It's, it's that constant, uh, crime that's occurring that, that I don't think we look at the social cost to, to that. What's the social economic cost to the average Joe that's going to work every day and his lawnmower gets stolen out of his front yard and you know the guy gets caught and he gets a slap on the wrist. You know, the, 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 the good working folks are the ones that are suffering from this. And, and when you say that, it's not, necessarily in a national trend it's not necessarily just those non-violent felons we have seen time and time again in recent times where violent offenders are actually out on probation out on parole and are committing uh, aggravated assaults committing homicides and when it comes back to where did the breakdown occur we have politicians we have attorneys prosecutors and things like that that don't want to say that the actual breakdown is at that level it's easier to make it fall back onto the police i think you would agree with that it's easier to just say it, it, it that crime is out of control that we don't have enough officers and things like that how do we start moving in the direction where we can be more transparent as a uh as a police department or whatever how how do you make that uh that change to where the police department, because you at some point you have to defend yourself out there and say, look, these are all the arrests we've made. We're coming completely clean with you. This is everything that was done. This is why this person was released. Do you think it will do any good first off? And second, if it will do any good, how do we even make that happen? Hmm. I, I, a big portion of that is going to be communication from the follow-up detectives or whoever's handling that case. But I also think it's also committing to partnerships and communication with, with those very uh, entities that are causing some of the issues, whether it's our prosecutor's office and the courts. Um, I know that, that many prosecutors understand what we're going through and you know they'll want more information. If we have one of our frequent flyers, we can express to them, hey, this is the issue. This guy keeps committing crime. And, and then they're willing to, to put a little more effort into it and take that person off the street. Again, then it hits the court system. And I can't, you know, that's, that's like going to Vegas. You never know which Absolutely. way it's going to roll. So, so back to the, back to getting it out there. I think, I think it comes back to courageous leadership uh, that's willing to step out in front of things and explain that, no, the police are doing their job look at our arrest numbers. And I think they start, need to start doing comparisons of who we arrest, who gets convicted, and what those sentences may be for. I know 
Another angle I might look at is, is for community organizers to set up uh, groups. I mean, we, we have, we've got plenty of people watching the police, but do we have people looking at, at prosecutors' offices, you know, tracking cases that come through? Um, we used to have a, a group that would come out to the courts and sit in the back, and I think they'd wear a pin that said court watch or something like that. And they'd sit in the back of the room during trials and just watch how the trial proceeded and and kind of, uh, I, I think, reinforce that the public was watching these things, that they weren't just happening behind closed doors. I think that's something we probably need to get back to. I think that's where we'll get the, the complete picture of the breakdown in the criminal justice system. And one other thing is, I think, I think incarceration, you know, we need to look at that because I think, I think, I think our politicians worry too much about the cost, you know, the cost of incarcerating someone. But are we comparing that against the cost of the economic damage it's causing to a community? So let's go into that a little bit. Can you go a little deeper into that? The, the cost comparison of putting someone in jail, keeping them in jail, and then the cost to maybe the neighborhood that they're going to go back to the section of the city that they're going to go back to and the damage that's going to be done there. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Well, it, it goes back to, back to uh, when I was talking about the, the average working Joe that, you know, his lawnmower gets stolen. Okay. Uh, th that's an issue, you know, is, is a guy going to have time to go buy another one? Should he have to buy another one? And it's repetitious. If the same criminal is doing it, you know, it's not just one lawnmower, it's not just one car. You know, eventually that impact, let's say your car gets stolen. Uh, for most people, your car is your second most expensive asset that you possess. It's also your lifeline. It's how you get to work. It's how you feed your kids. It's how you get your kids to school. Uh, what's the impact when that car gets stolen and that, that person can't get to their job? or they have difficulty in it. You know, it's, it's a trickle effect, it's a, it's a chain reaction. You know, time lost uh, for them, time lost for the employer, the, the time spent with the insurance company trying to get your car back. I think if there was a way to quantify that number, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but someone out there should be able to take a look at the crime statistics and say what the average cost would be uh, per crime. I think you would see that the balance would definitely be shifted and putting some of these people away just to show that, you know, give, give them, give them time to be accountable for the crimes they've committed. Cause basically this is like telling your kid, Hey, I'm going to put you in time out, you know, for, for taking a cookie out of the cookie jar. And then you're like, yeah, you've been there for 30 seconds. Go ahead and go back to, to playing video games. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no punishment. There's no penalty for committing the crime. And I think we need to get back to uh, making them stick to the penalties that are on the books. I think a major problem is accountability, though, that you said. And what I mean by accountability is I, I feel like we've gone so far in another direction that people don't even take responsibility for the crimes that are being committed. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else that has made this happen. It's never on the person. There's no onus anymore. There's no onus in the courts. There's no onus uh, to their families, to their community, anything. That's a problem that needs to be addressed, I think, before anything, that there is no ownership anymore of any of the problems. It, it almost seems as if 
if we as a society have started to allow the behavior to occur. Absolutely. You know, we, we make excuses for things. Um, we, we make excuses for disparities and, and who's getting arrested and who's not. You know, th those issues are bigger. I'll be the first one to say, I think there's definitely socioeconomic issues that contribute to some crime in our country. Um, I think it's those issues, not not um, anything else that contribute to, the, to those crimes. Um, we clearly also have issues with, with a drug problem here in the U.S. You know, as, as much as we want to decriminalize drugs, I'm, I'm really sitting back and watching what's going to happen in Oregon with their uh, decriminalization of user quantities of, of what we would consider hard drugs. Oklahoma's because, done the same thing. Oh, did they really? Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Well, I not, not I, quite as extreme, but yes, they they are moving in that direction. I, I think that's a dangerous road to go down. You know, I, I feel for these folks that are addicted to, to something like heroin that creates that physical addiction. Um, but at the same time, I don't know how many of those folks really want to get off it. I think there, there are the, the few that do. I know we spent uh, quite a bit on a, a new innovative program here to try and uh, give these people the option of going into a rehab center instead of going to jail. And, and the only ones that took advantage of that, I think, uh, over a two-year period was, was less than a handful, less than five or six that actually went through and, and wanted to get better and get help. I think the other ones, it's very hard to get off that, that lifestyle. And, and when you're addicted to that kind of drug, you need to get your fix. Your body's hurting for it. And I think at some point, you're going to do whatever you can to, to get scratch up whatever coin you can. Uh, to buy your next fix, just to get a, you know, a level level period for yourself. I also see that a problem with the the war on drugs is what a lot of people say now, is that once again we go back to these aren't necessarily nonviolent felonies, but they say they're victimless crimes uh, because the person is only hurting themselves. But what the average public doesn't see is that. Almost all criminal behavior stems from that uh, narcotics kind of uh, center point. And I don't mean every single crime that's committed comes from narcotics. I mean that every kind of crime has a nexus with the narcotics. Uh, people are breaking into places, burglars, to in order to sell things or steal things to sell them to buy drugs. Prostitution is heavily and you being a vice detective, prostitution is heavily in that nexus. Uh, homicide rates are through the roof. And what's amazing about those homicide rates that are narcotics involved are a large majority of those are marijuana related. And you talk about a gateway drug and, and people thinking that marijuana is okay to be legalized and everything. But that's where you're seeing a lot of the homicides that are in the narcotics arena right now. So I don't think that it's a victimless crime. And I don't know that there's a way that we can really explain that until people see it firsthand. You're, you're right on that topic. The, the, the crimes are not victimless, whether it's, it's drug use or prostitution, which, you know, we'll, let's tie, let's tie, you know, typically I tie street level prostitution into drug use. Okay. The only reason that woman's out there is to get her next fix. But she is, she's victimized. She's victimized a lot of ways. She's victimized by um, the drug dealer that's selling her the drugs. She's victimized by the John that's, that's picking her up. 
uh, and at times they're victimized by the court system when some of those folks are the ones that, that need the help the most. And they might be willing to take it if the right person offers it uh, to them, or there's some intervention somewhere along that criminal justice path for them. Um, but drugs definitely are not, not victimless. They tie into, like you said, just about every other crime. Uh, most of our stolen cars are tied back to someone using it to go buy their drugs or sell their drugs, or they're stealing it to, to take something out of it to sell for drugs. It's, it's an endless cycle. And uh, I know there's been a couple of good documentaries on some things going on in Seattle. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I think it's called Seattle's Burning. Yes, I've and seen And then it. they have a second one called Saving the Soul of Seattle. Yeah, I've seen Seattle's Burning. That's, that's phenomenal. Uh, you know, kudos to the newscaster that put that together because I think it gives a very clear picture of what we're seeing in a lot of our major cities right now. And in his second documentary, he definitely shows some ways that we can help people get out of the, get out of the, the drug use nightmare uh, that they're in. And he presented some very interesting uh, rehabilitation methods that, that are common sense, I think. I don't know if you've, but he talked about setting up a, a prison system or jail system that was, it was a uh, two tiered. One was a very minimum and one was a, one was a very secure facility. So someone would come in, get booked in, they'd go through the withdrawal process. And then after that, they could choose to go over to the minimum side, start going through a rehab process, start going through uh, job training, start talking to a therapist to try and figure out the root causes of where they're at. And, and I really think his ideas had some merit. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. The only thing I would disagree with that is, is I I, I once again feel like uh, we take we take a little bit of that ownership away. A absolutely, if we can get people to change their ways, go into rehab. But I think what you see a lot is when they go into rehab, it is to avoid a prison sentence. It's not necessarily to get clean and to go straight and to do what they need to do. Because as you said, you see the same people over and over and over again. I'm not saying that there's not people that, that don't want to change because there are definite people that want to get out of that life. You, you spoke about people that are being victimized and, and human trafficking and things like that. That's, that's areas that we should focus on. I don't know necessarily if I agree that those other ways we should focus. Does that, does that make any sense? It, it does. And I, I think, I think as I recall on that documentary, the, the premise was that they would serve their entire sentence, but part of it would be on that side, trying to get, trying to get better. Okay. I see what you're saying. And it, so, so the, the, the accountability is still there. It's not that they're getting a shorter sentence. It's not that they're, you know, uh, looking for the easy way out. I think the accountability was still there that they would do their time, and then they they had the opportunity to to get better. I mean, that's all we're all we're doing, right? We're we're providing them an opportunity to make a choice to get back in line with where society uh, wants most people to be. You know, which is on the right side of the law. Absolutely, lot. absolutely. And I I think though that we we have we have taken things. Uh, in a crazy direction within, I would say even the last two to three years is when it's really started ramping up uh, in another direction. 
you were part of uh, the public order unit, which was, um, I don't want to say riot control, but uh, crowd control and things like that. You would agree that, that since this summer and everything that happened all throughout the United States, those things have even changed of how you can address that public order, how you can address those crowds and what those crowds are getting away with now that that five, ten years ago they would have never gotten away with. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that now. Um, you know, things are very, you know, the, the playing field's changed. The goalpost has moved. Uh, what, what The rules we understood have, have, have been altered. You know, I'll be the first one. I support people's constitutional rights 100%. I believe in the right to free speech. You know, this, this cancel culture that's going on is, is wrong. I, I want ideas that challenge my beliefs. Whether or not I agree with them, I don't mind hearing them. Uh, but, but where we've gone, you know, I, I believe in people's right to express themselves in, in a, a civil fashion. You know, whether that's marching in the streets, I'm okay with that. As long as there's no violence, as long as there's no property destruction. And I don't know where we got to the point of feeling like damaging someone else's property is is a form of expression because it clearly is not. And I think I think I, how many how many times have I said this? It comes back to courageous leadership and and good politicians that are willing to step up and understand. Let's talk about the average Joe with the lawnmower again. That's the guy that gets affected. Okay, the, the mom and pop shop. You know where where it's a small business and they've invested their time and money into it, and they're giving back or trying to give to their community and, and eke out a living. You know they end up with their their business torched, and a lot of times my understanding is is that the insurance companies aren't paying for for riot situations. Absolutely. So they lose their life life savings, and it depresses the entire community. I, I think we have a responsibility. Uh, to make sure people are obeying the laws in those situations and still balance their right to free speech. But in my opinion, we've moved too far uh, in the wrong direction. And I would agree with you there. I, I absolutely agree that it's someone's right for freedom of speech. I love to hear other people's ideas. Um, it, it, it's your right to march in the streets to, to uh, protest against what you feel is unjust in the world. When it takes that hard turn, though, and it becomes just a, a contentious group, burning buildings down, blocking highways off, blocking streets off, and, and stopping people that most of the time have nothing to do with what you're protesting, uh, those people are the ones that are getting caught in the middle. How do we draw that line? Because it's not happening anymore. We saw it this summer. We saw city after city after city burn. Not only did we see cities burn, we saw federal courthouses on fire. We saw uh, where police precincts were actually cleared out, boarded up, and uh, people took over sections of the city. I understand exactly what everyone's saying. They feel they have the right to march. What they don't have the right to do, though, is infringe on other people's rights. And I think that we've really started missing that in the world today. I, again, I can't agree with you more. I think we saw things this summer that I've never seen in my life, the amount of violence that occurred, uh, the lack of respect to the officers 
that were actually trying to protect them on their march. Um, the, the, the way people were acting towards police, you know, they're definitely not treating the officers as if they're human. The things that are said to officers working the front line on those protests, uh, my hat's off to them for the patience that they have. Uh, these guys have to put up with a lot of things right now and having someone that they're protecting during a march or protest come up and swear at them, call them names, uh, is just unacceptable. And again, I think that comes back to, we need leadership that speaks out we need politicians that speak up and let them know that they're supportive of their police agencies and that they won't tolerate the unrest in the cities. Because what does this unrest create? It creates a loss of economic value for the community. And eventually, uh, the thriving community turns into an empty wasteland. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's getting that idea out there to people to understand that that ultimately it hurts the public in general than who they are saying it hurts. You know, you're going to burn someone's business down. They probably had nothing to do with it. And you get into that weird, that weird world that we saw this summer. It was so strange to see courthouses closed down and things like that. That can't happen in a law and order society. And it, it felt to me, I don't know if it felt the way to you, the more, I don't want to say pushback there was to where we tried to reinstate law and order, the more there was pushback on the other side that there shouldn't be law and order. No, you're seeing a lot of that. Although on the upside to it, I, I can, can speak from one incident, wherein we finally did start enforcing the existing laws that we have uh, to reduce uh, the issues that they were causing, property damage-wise. Um, once we were allowed to enforce the law again, uh, we saw immediate compliance. Now, you know, all we ever look for in policing is voluntary compliance. So show of force, took a few people into custody and gave the, the rest of the crowd the rules to, to, to work by, and they immediately complied. And I think I think the, the hands-off approach was empowering a lot of these groups to feel like there was no there was no wrong that they could do, and they were allowed to just have carte blanche uh, to damage, you know, various portions of the city. So, I think it is important to to make sure we are protecting everyone's rights, those property owners. I would say this summer when all that happened, we kind of had the perfect storm of events. People had been locked in their houses. We'd seen violence go up throughout the year um, with people being um, kind of isolated away from their friends, uh, isolated from going out, not being able to shop, be out in public. Uh, with the protests that were happening, I know that I have never seen that. I don't know if you have seen that level of every single incident that happened was on a kind of microscopic level. Every single incident that you saw happen, and it was almost like there was just incident after incident, almost day after day, that were being scrutinized on the news. I think that it has backed away from that a little bit now, but I think we're getting ready to head back into it with the trial starting today in Minnesota. Um, we're getting ready to head back into that area, and that is a super... 
dangerous situation to be back in because I think that during those things, just like you said, people were emboldened with being able to break the rules, break the laws. How do we stop that before it ever starts back up? I think I think we as police departments need to be very clear. Again, I I, I keep beating the dead horse, but the I, politicians I know what have a huge hand in this. Okay, they are our public leaders, our our officials that that need to be very clear and speak very plainly to these groups that we do support their right to protest. We do support their right to speak out against injustice uh, that they perceive. Uh, we support that. We will protect that right for them to do that. But we will not tolerate damage to our communities or violence to, to other people. It's just unacceptable. And that needs to come from the very top. You talk a lot about leadership. I, I wanna hear about your leadership along the way. Ever since you joined until now, what kind of leadership molded you? Or was it a good leadership that that showed you the right way to go? Was it bad leadership that, that showed you what you don't want to do? Or was it a mixture of both as you came up? Because 25 years on, I'm sure you've seen all different kinds of leadership. I have, and, and I'm going to take the middle road. I think it was the combination of both, you know, coming up through the ranks. And I'm sure you've experienced it, that um, folks... You know, you know, some people are in leadership positions because they want the power. They, they are, or, or they just, uh, they, they want to hold something over someone or, or have that power of, like, again, power over someone. Uh, we've got leaders that empower their folks. We have leaders that, that teach them the right ways to treat people, the way, you know, they set a great example. Um, other leaders, not so much. It's the do as I say, not as I do kind of approach. Uh, micromanagement, you know, a huge pet peeve of mine. You know, people need to be allowed to do the job that they were hired for. Uh, we give these people badges and guns, and then we want to micromanage them uh, to the nth degree when really they should be professional enough to say, hey, Sarge, or hey, Lieutenant, or hey, Captain, I'm, I'm in this, I'm having difficulty making this decision. What do you think I should do? And, and you might give them hints along the way. Uh, but, but it's hard to find the good leadership. And I think now, uh, I, I think in some ways, maybe with the, the new generation we're hiring, people tend to want to be more, uh, more friends with someone than their supervisor. So I think you can be fair, but at the same time, you need to do the right thing when it comes to, to internal uh, course corrections for our employees. And you need to be fair and honest about it. Uh, I, I think at times it's hard for 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 people to have to say uh, you're doing something wrong. You know those hard conversations that people have. You know it's not easy to tell someone that you work with. You know even if they're your subordinate. Hey, guess what? You're really messing up. Uh, and I think we 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 have the opportunity as leaders in an organization. To turn that around, I, I'm personally a strong believer in intent-based leadership. I believe in, in letting the people fill the roles that they have, the, the role of police officer, the role of sergeant. Uh, my position right now, I don't, I don't try and be the sergeant. I don't try and be the lieutenant. Uh, if I try and do all the work for them or micromanage them, I'm taking away growth opportunities for them. We're, we're all going to make mistakes, and that's fine. You know, make your mistake. 
it means you tried and then move on from that. If, if I take that opportunity to make that, that mistake happen, and I'm not talking life-threatening mistakes, I'm talking just, just general procedural ones, I think you take away a real opportunity to develop your future leaders on the department. So people need to be empowered and trusted to do the job that they were hired for. And, and really it comes down to trusting your people. You know, if you don't trust your people, you're gonna micromanage them. If you trust them, assuming they haven't done anything to, to lose your trust, I think you need to let them do their job. And, and one of my principles is I really don't care how you get from point A to point B, you know, cause, cause the way I drive there is gonna be one way, but you might get from point A to point B some, some totally different way. And I might look at the way you did it and be like, what the hell is that? It doesn't matter. You got to point B. And as long as you did it legally, you know, ethically and, and within our policies, I have to support that decision. I have to support the choices you made because you, you met those requirements that, that I really do think keep the public trust. Leadership is a, is a big thing in my life and, and I read a lot on it and I try and uh, do the best I can with the scope of authority that I have to uh, let my people know that they're supported and to give them the opportunities to, to move through their careers and become better police officers and um, able to make good decisions and feel like you know they've got the confidence to make those decisions and know that there's their higher ups have their back. I think that's the big problem these days though, is that a lot of people are very afraid that their backs, that people don't have their back. I think that's one of the biggest things that you see right now, uh, how we can fix that. I don't know, but I, I think that's one of the, the big things. The, the next area that I want to talk to before we get into coffee, this is kind of the last of the law enforcement that I want to talk about, but what do you see as the future of law enforcement? I, I, think, I think we'll see that pendulum swing. I, I think we'll see the, the broken windows theory of policing make its return. But I think there'll be significant changes in the quality of the officers we're getting. If it goes the way I, I imagine it, I think we will see cities starting to fund their police departments better. I think we'll see them willing to pay to get a better qualified candidate, a higher level of education. Uh, I, I think you're gonna see a more, more professional approach. I'm not saying that our, our profession isn't, isn't professional now, but I think, I think we're on the edge of getting to that next level, but it all depends on, on, on where we go from here. You know, we're gonna get better trained officers and hopefully there's some, some better standardization on our techniques and, and, and things that we do as police. Um, but I, I think we're gonna get back to community oriented policing again. I know we say that, but it costs money to, to be community oriented. You need officers, you need people in the neighborhoods. I, I think we'll see that, that approach come back because people want to know their police and the police wanna know the communities they're serving. You know, if, if you got an officer that's not getting out of the car, he's, he's missing the boat. You know, you need to get out and talk to the kids in the neighborhood, pick up a basketball once in a while. Um, but to do all that stuff, we need more officers so they're not completely tied to the radio, going call to call to call. But I, I think the future is, is going back to the basics of what we, what we do as police. It seems funny to me that going back to the basics 
some would say was what has gotten uh, us to this situation right now. But in fact, it's what we need to do. It's that whole cycle again where you kind of almost have to just restart the whole system, uh, give it kind of a hard start reboot uh, to, to get it going. Um, because I, I agree in those neighborhoods, you need to know your areas, you need to know what's going on. And I think it's going to take more officers on the road um, or more officers in general, in detective positions, in patrol positions, uh, in all the, in administrative positions all over. It's going to take more officers because, like you said, call to call to call. Until you can get that out of the way, that's the, the second part's never going to happen to that. That that's that's a hundred percent correct. The the fact that um, I, I think one of the reasons we may have got here was because over the years population growths have, have increased in the big cities, and I don't know that the the officer ratio has increased. I think they've pr stayed pretty stable or actually have gone down. And I think as soon as they go down, you end up going to that call to call model, where guy gets on shift. And before, you know, as soon as he gets in his car, he's already off to his first call. And before that's done, he's getting dispatched on another one. And, and they go that all day long without taking the time to, to be able to breathe, to relax and, and you know, deal with someone in a non-criminal a, a non encounter scenario. You know, being able to stop and, and talk to Bob at the, at the convenience store and say, hey, how are things going, Bob? You know, while you share a cup of coffee with them. I, I think that may have been a contributing factor of how we got back to this. You know, officers are dealing with much more higher stress situations now. When they're going call to call, I, I think they're continually amped up. They never have a time to power down. And, you know, I think that's contributed to some of the mistakes that we've seen uh, occur on the news and things of that nature. Speaking of coffee, let's get into this. Uh, I've been excited. <laughs> You sent me some of it. I think it's amazing coffee. Let's talk about all the different. First off, how did you even come up with the idea that you wanted to own a coffee company? Well, I think I think as cops, there's one thing we know real well, and that's cop stuff, and it's coffee. Um, I don't know how many gallons or hundreds of gallons or truckloads I've drank over my career, but it's been plenty. Uh, so coffee's always been my thing. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten more educated in it and what I like. And I've got some good friends that we've kicked this idea around for a couple of years. And we finally decided to, to put our money where our mouth is and, and do our own coffee. Because yeah, a couple of things. One, we want to make a little money, but we also want to give something back to the community. And we're all in a position to do that right now. So we started Police Coffee Company back in October of 2020, you know, had a lot of free time that year with COVID, not a lot of travel going on. So we sat down, put pen to paper and kicked this thing off in October. And, you know, it's been, it's been a really interesting journey so far. We're, we're a very new company. We're, we're still building our, our base and, and our sustainability, but all the indicators are there that it's gonna continue to grow. Uh, one of the unique things about our company is we've partnered with Concerns of Police Survivors. It's a charity that supports uh, the families of fallen officers, their spouses, their children, 
uh, their coworkers at times. And what we've decided to do was, you know, much like police work, you're not going to get rich doing police work, uh, but you're going to have a satisfying career in most cases. We've decided with this company to give 50% of our profits back to concerns of police survivors. And, and I think that really shows our dedication to the community that we're serving and, and, and my fellow law enforcement officers that we are uh, serious about supporting police, that we are serious about taking care of their families if something were to, were to happen. And this charity is one that I think is, is, is fantastic. The things they do for the families, the, the opportunities that they do for the, the children of fallen officers, it's just a great organization. And when I started doing my research on charities, I, I really spent a lot of time looking to see which one I wanted to put our money in. Uh, as, as you may know, many of these charities, for every dollar you give them, maybe 10 cents makes it to the bottom, makes it to the, to, to the end user. Something stuck out with concerns of police survivors is that over 90 cents of every dollar makes it to the end user, makes it to the programs that, that help those families, uh, whether that's summer camps for the kids, whether it's a, um, various therapy uh, sessions. Uh, they, they do a lot of retreats for the spouses of the fallen in the line of duty. And I just can't say enough good things about them. I think the, the organization is very well run and they really do care about, about the law enforcement community. When you decided them, I thought it was interesting when you and I talked and you said you kind of wanted to put your money where your mouth was. That's why you went with this group. What I told you was interesting to me was the amount that you are donating to this unit. I, I want you to go into that because it's not to brag or anything like that. I think it is very important that people know just how much of when they purchase your coffee, when they purchase your products how much is going back to the concerns of police survivors? A lot of people will say, I'll give 3% or I'll give 10% or 15%. You give 50% of your net profits back. Yeah, like you said, 50%. you can't get rich doing that. And you guys have decided to take the stand and say 50% going back to them. So I want you to talk about that because I think that it's vitally important that people know that and that you should be acknowledged for things like that. No, thank you. We, uh, we really believe in this. And like I said, it's a labor of love. This isn't, I'm not looking to get rich out of police coffee. Um, we're looking to give back to the community and my partners feel the same way. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, when we started it, I was like, man, that's, that's a lot. That's potentially, that's a lot of money you know, that, that's, that's not going in my, in my pocket. And at the same time, it's, it's also, it just, it feels like it's the right thing to do. Uh, like I said, we don't want to get rich off it, but we do want to, to be able to give something back. And I think by starting this business up, like I said, it gives, gives um, a lot back to the law enforcement community. And that 50% shows a commitment. I mean, we're committed to, to, to doing that. Uh, some people wonder, you know, if we're cooking our books or anything, but we do keep our books open to concerns of police survivors. So, so that organization is fully aware of, of what's coming in and what's, what's going their way. You know, nothing, nothing secret there. 
uh, I don't ever want to get caught in that trap of, you know, we're saying one thing, but really doing something else. So we are giving the 50% of our net profits to concerns of police survivors. And I, I think it's, it's something great for our community. And you know how bad it's been last year. We've, we've had a record high number of in the line of duty deaths last year. I mean, we got way down. We, I, I almost think we got just below 100 at one point or right around that. And I think last year uh, we were close to 200 or maybe just over, if, if my numbers are right. So I think, I think now more than ever, um, people need to see support for police. And it's funny because with all the new technology, uh, with, with internet sales, we're actually able to see the demographics that are buying. What I'm seeing is a lot of wives and mothers buying for their, their spouses, their brothers, their, their kids that, that are involved in, in law enforcement. And I also get a large number of emails from folks who have lost someone in the line of duty. Uh, very thankful, very complimentary of what we're doing. And I'm not a super emotional guy, but I, I will say that gets to me. You know, when these families come out and, and say thanks, you know, it makes me feel much better uh, every day about my profession. And it makes me know that I'm doing the right thing with police coffee, giving that 50% back. Another interesting thing I think that you said to me when we were talking was that uh, you you have a demographic that you're going for. Um, and you really don't care about the other demographics. You know that there's a group that is going to buy your coffee. You know that there's a group that's not going to buy your coffee. And you're more concerned with uh, what the first demographic thinks than the other. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought it was pretty interesting when you told me about it. Yeah, when, when we started this up, we, you know, it was, you know, October, we're still dealing with a very polar, you know, end of a very polarized summer, just getting into winter and the polarization really isn't, I, I don't think it's changed much at all in the last, you know, nine months. No. Um, we knew it would be an interesting start and we knew we'd get some pushback from, from people that don't like the police. Um, I have received some very interesting emails from folks on, on what they think of us. Uh, and not the positive ones. Um, but realistically, we wanted to, to, to get the backing and support of those people that support police, which, which truly, you know, I said 50% of the population when we were talking, but I believe it's much more than that. I, I, I believe the vast majority, right or left, uh, leaning support the police. And, you know, that's the, that's the market I want to get. I'm not concerned with the people that hate the police or want to defund us. Uh, you know, for those folks, I did, I did come up with a special coffee blend for them. It's the, <laughs> it's the defunded decaf, which, which, you know, some people caught my humor in it. And some, some folks didn't, it, it is humorous and it is a really good decaf, but no, we're, we're really interested in, in getting those people that support the police and the families of, of police officers and, and everyone that, that supports, you know, constitutional law and order. Let's go over your flavors a little bit. So you have Back the Blue. Let's talk about that one first. That's my favorite. Back the Blue is uh, is is what I like to think of our staple product. You know, it, it spells it out right there in the name, Back the Blue. Um, it's a medium roast. Uh, it's one of our best tasting ones. Uh, I, I tend to like light roast, but 
that's definitely one of the best medium roasts I've ever had. Um, as you know, we've got another medium roast that's uh, Hot Pursuit, and they're both excellent. In fact, well, I can't say enough good things about our coffee. We do make it in small batches. Uh, we do use only the, uh, the the very best or or specialty beans, as they call it. Uh, if I'm, I'm going to digress for just a minute. Absolutely. So the majority of, of coffee in the world is is uh, Arabica beans, and they they pretty much cover about 60% of the coffee sales you know in the world for these type of beans. But only 10 or 15% of those are considered um, specialty grade. And so you end up paying a little more for that, but that's what we purchase um, from various farms and, and direct sales uh, to use in our coffee. I, I really think that makes a huge difference in the flavor. Uh, when we get into the roasting side, that becomes more of an art. And we've got some really good roasters that uh, are really phenomenal in how they get the coffee to, to release the flavors that we, we, we want it to. You know, it's almost like winemaking. But something else, Back the Blue and our operator roast are, are blended coffee. So we've actually taken beans from different countries and, and put them together to, to elicit the flavors uh, that we want. Uh, Hot Pursuit and Code 3 are single source coffees. So, so one bean is there. And, you know, the blends give us a little, a chance to, to play with it a little bit, to, to, to really, you know, play with the flavors. And then, of course, you've added in one final one that you didn't think would do well, <laughs> but you said that it is selling way beyond your expectations. <laughs> okay. Okay. We got to go back on this one. So, so first of all, yes, I'm a coffee snob. Okay. If you want the best cup of coffee, I might lose sales on this raspberry donut flavor that we're going to talk about here, but <laughs> best cup of coffee is going to be coffees that are whole bean. Okay. Your whole bean coffee, you grind it in the morning, right before you make your cup and you put that, you know, whatever your coffee maker of choices, whether that's a French press or a drip coffee maker or a pour over doing that, will will elicit the best cup of coffee you've had. But you've got to drink it black. When you drink it black, you get all the little nuanced uh, flavors. As soon as you add sugar or cream, you're kind of dulling uh, the benefit of having really good coffee, you know, those, those flavors and smells. And one of my favorite things is when you grind it in the morning, you, know, you release that smell in the air, and uh, it just feels like it's, it's going to be a good day when I smell that. <laughs> So, so as we move down from that, um, you know, adding, adding flavor into your coffee, you know, that's, that's great. That's, that's our choices. Um, I was really hesitant to go with the flavored coffee though, because I think it takes away from the, the coffee snob side of me, but you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll tell you, I like hazelnut sometimes hazelnut syrup or whatnot in my coffee. I use honey in mine. Oh dear. I'll have to try that. I've never put honey in coffee. So we we've uh, we decided to tongue in cheek make a, a raspberry chocolate donut flavored coffee that's raspberry and chocolate flavored, and it has been a surprising seller for us. Um, the the demand has been really really good, and I think we'll continue adding various flavored coffees, you know, like like one offs or seasonal ones as we progress in in, in growth. 
one other one that I think we should mention because I think it's one of your big sellers, especially uh, still kind of being in winter, but coming out of the the, the big part of winter is your Five uh, O Coco. Uh, you said that this is also a big seller with your company. Let's talk about first off why yours is different from other people's. Uh, why people should try yours, and then kind of what goes into it. Um, what goes into the cocoa is a top secret recipe that I can't really give you. <laughs> I tried. Our, our, our cocoa is, uh, is responsibly sourced. Um, and it's done. Uh, I've got a local cocoa manufacturer that has put it together for us and they're actually a cacao company. So they make very high end chocolate and they, much like our coffee company, they, they travel the world and, and buy directly from these uh, cacao farmers. And they've put together one of the best blends of cocoa that I've ever tasted. And I feel just fine putting our name on and, and giving it the stamp of approval. And the feedback feedback has been great. Now, we may have launched it at just the right time, which was, was right as the snow was starting to fall. And that's when most people want their cocoa. Uh, but it's a uh, it's phenomenal. I don't I don't know if you've had a chance to taste it yet. I have but, not tried it yet. Okay, I'll see about see about sending one your way. But it's it's really good. It's uh, you know, with them being a cacao roaster and knowing the quality of their chocolates and, and other items they put out, um, I was very glad that they were willing to to create this product for us. So two of our roasts are blended, which means we take beans from from it could be one country in another country and we mix them together. And that, that gives you an entirely unique flavor. So that's why we've done it on Back the Blue and on uh, Operator Rose, is, is it gives us a little, a little bit more chance to play with, with the end, end result. Uh, some of the other ones, like I said, Hot Pursuit, Code 3, and I believe Defunded Decaf are single source. So it's one bean from one country that's going into the, into the bag of coffee after it's been roasted. Um, you know, we, we primarily get our coffee from, from Costa Rica and Colombia. Um, I haven't really branched down to some of the other ones, but those are, those are our primary sources for coffee. I tend to like Costa Rican because little known fact is I'm actually half Costa Rican. So I have to, I have to support my family members that are still living in, in San Jose down there who are not involved in the coffee business, <laughs> but um, each region, just like, you know, coffee, believe it or not, is really comparable to wine uh, and, and fine, you know, whiskeys that, that have a distinct taste to the region that they came from. You know, we look at bourbons, we look at scotches, uh, there's a distinction. I think you, you find the same things with coffee if you actually slow down, make yourself a good cup and, and take time to smell the roses. You know, I don't know about you, but some days I'm running out the door, just, you know, gulping it down in one shot. But when I do have the time uh, to really sit down, <laughs> this might sound a little funny, but just to be mindful, sit down and, and take that sip of coffee in the morning and kind of just let the day unfold. I think that's when you really start to notice uh, the different nuances and flavors and and the roasts, because each roast is a different flavor as well. You know, you can take that same bean and, and do a light roast on it. It's going to taste completely different than a dark roast. So, 
That's so my recommendations. What what is your favorite way to prepare your coffee? You talked about a lot of them, French press, pour overs. What what's your favorite way to prepare your coffee? If if I have the time, I either French press it or I like to do a pour over. And you've probably seen those. It looks like Absolutely. a funnel that you set on top of your cup. And uh, but to do that right, you know, it takes a little bit of time. You know, you put a little water on, you let the let the grinds uh, or grounds bloom a little bit, if you will. And then you add a little more and you keep adding it, you know, incrementally until your cup's full. Uh, by doing that, I think you actually get your, at least in my opinion, you get the best flavors out of the coffee. I think French press is a, is a close second. And then when I'm in a rush, I've, I've got a drip coffee maker like everyone else. And, uh, and I'll do that. But the one thing I do consistently across all three of those is I do grind my beans every day. So if, if you have the choice between buying a, a bag of pre-ground coffee, whether from us or anyone else, as soon as those coffee beans are ground, they begin oxidizing. So you immediately start losing some flavor, the, the smells and uh, um, scents you get out of that tend to, tend to start to fade as soon as it's ground. So I always recommend buying whole bean coffee and, you know, you can use a cheap grinder, you can use a hand grinder, or you can spend money, you know, sky's the limit on this coffee stuff. Uh, and grind it yourself every morning. The coffee will be fresher, and I guarantee it'll taste amazing. What is your favorite out of out of the group? <laughs> so, believe it or not, I, I was always a light roast fan until I tried our operator roast, which is our dark roast. And that has become my go-to for, for, you know, just a daily coffee drink is, is the operator roast. It is very smooth as I would describe it. Uh, you know, dark coffee tends to be slightly less acidic because it's, it's uh, roasted slightly longer uh, than our light roast. And it is, it kind of reminds me of Guinness. If you're a Guinness drinker, it reminds me of drinking a Guinness. And I think that's, probably why it's become my favorite. You mentioned that just now, the the light roast, a medium roast, a dark roast. For people that don't know, can you explain that a little bit, walk them through what a light roast, what a medium roast? Because I think it'll help out when they're purchasing coffee. Because I think a lot of people now just go to the grocery store or order their coffee or wherever, but they just order whatever they know. And I think if they really knew what they were looking for, they might have a way better coffee experience. I think you're right on that. Um, part of it is, is folks just, uh, you know, try, try as many different types as you can. So light roast, you'll tend to get um, more of the, the fruity flavors, more, uh, more, more citrusy at times, but that's probably because it's got the, I, I believe it's because it's got the higher acidity. When it comes to actually roasting the coffee, the actual difference between light and dark roast is only about uh, 30 degrees in about two more minutes. So coffee gets roasted. Uh, they put it in the, in the roaster at about 380 degrees. When it gets up to 400 degrees, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the roasting machines. There's a, uh, a little thing you twist and pull out. It holds the beans in. I don't know if you've ever seen someone during the roasting process. I, I've we'll watched some stuff. I think you have some stuff on your website. Yeah, <laughs> we, we do have one guy doing that. Yeah. 
uh, when they take it out at 400 degrees, they, they pull it out and they listen. It's again, it's very much an art form. They pull it out and they're listening for what they call the first crack. It sounds like popcorn popping. It doesn't actually pop, but it's actually the bean actually fracturing. And they listen for that first one and then they'll put it back in. And at that point, uh, if it's a light roast, it's done. Typically about 12 minutes uh, once it's put in is, is the roast time. Uh, to get to a dark roast, after that first crack, they'll put it back in and keep checking on it till they get the second crack, which is about 430 degrees and only about 13 minutes. So really about a, about a minute difference in time is what separates the, uh, the light from the dark. And then of course, medium is, is right down the middle. So I'm not even gonna touch on medium because if you're ever unsure, I recommend just go with a medium roast. You can't go wrong with a medium. It's, they're, they're very balanced. And, and so if I was recommending things, I'd, I'd say start with a medium and then try a light and then try a dark and see where, where your taste buds fit in. Let's go over uh, prices a little bit um, and what people are getting for it. And then not only prices, but what you actually have on the website to, um, to sell. So as far as prices go, I think we're sitting right at the, uh, the $15 mark. I, I didn't look recently. Um, something to know about coffee, just as a side note is that coffee is the second uh, most traded commodity in the world after oil. Uh, and so coffee's up there. And as soon as you go to a specialty coffee, you do, you do end up paying more for the, for the raw Absolutely. beans. So our price does, it may, may be higher than some, but I think for what you're getting, it's, it's reasonable. And we're also giving 50% of our profits back. Um, as you know, I gave a, a code for, for your listeners Absolutely. and viewers out there to get 10% off. And that's going to be DJK10. Shoot, set it down. DJK10. Thanks. So if you put DJK10 into the coupon code area of the, of the order page, it'll knock 10% off the price of the coffee. Um, as far as merchandise goes, we, we've got these great shirts, uh, which I think I see one on yours. Uh, I am a, wearing <laughs> one. Um, we've got these really great insulated mugs. We also have some tin mugs and I don't have it handy, but we also have a, a, a car cup, you know, with the, I call them the sippy lids on top. So it's a thermos. Um, and we're looking at doing some other things. So we've got the flavored coffee. We're actually looking at doing some uh, treats for your four-legged friend that may come out in the near future. I can't give you the name on that because I don't want anyone to steal it. Um, but we are looking at, at some dog treats and we're also looking at, uh, we get a lot of demand for K-cups. So let me let me touch on that for a second. So, okay. I was hoping so my you would. Least, my least favorite method of brewing coffee is also the most convenient way of brewing coffee is, is the K-cups. Um, what we tried to do was ride the line and we, we've offered the, the reusable K-cups that you can take, uh, open up, put the coffee in, and then put it in your, in your Keurig machine or whatever other machine will take those and brew your cup. Not ideal because you can't really control a lot with it, but it allows those people who want the convenience to use it. Um, in the future, we may be looking at offering K-cups but I always want to tell people your best bang for the buck is buying a bag, uh, a full bag of beans and grinding it yourself. Uh, K-cups for the record, uh, 
you know, for our $15, you're getting 12 ounces of coffee and it's good coffee. With most K-cups, which you're, you're paying roughly the equivalent to that, and you're getting about four ounces of coffee. And I don't think people see the, the, the cost difference that they're paying for the convenience. So my recommendation, you know, K-cups, yes, I, I agree they're convenient and we do get a lot of demand for them. So that's something you may see in the future, but I will always recommend buying whole bean coffee you know, by the bag and grinding it fresh every morning. We've covered coffee. We've covered cocoa. We've covered the products on the site. Is there anything else? I know you can't talk about the uh, four-legged treats yet. Is there anything else you want to promote before we wrap this up? I just want to uh, really promote concerns of police survivors. If you know, you're not a coffee or cocoa drinker or don't like cool merchandise, uh, take that money and, and you know, reach out to concerns of police survivors and, and you know, give your donation there directly. Guys, you heard it here. Uh, Concerns of police survivors. These guys give a uh, a very large portion of their profits to Concerns of Police Survivors. You really got to go check out their coffee. If you go to policecoffee.com, you can look through all their brands. It gives you a walkthrough of kind of their brewing process or roasting process. Uh, it's got a couple of videos of my man right here, Stefan, talking about the company. You can buy products there. You can buy coffee mugs there. You can buy some shirts there. It, it covers everything. But really, you guys got to go check out this coffee. It is absolutely fantastic. So once again, go to policecoffee.com. If you go there after listening to this, put in the code DJK10, and that will give you 10% off your order. If you want more of me, you can go to YouTube at the DTD Podcast. You can go to Facebook group at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. That's going to be it for the show this week. Guys, go check out policecoffee.com. Help these guys out so they can help the people that they help. That's Stefan. I'm DJ. This has been the show. Remember, you come here every week because the best stories are true. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. We'll see you later.